0: good evening everybody uh thanks for joining us online let me pray and then we're going to begin looking at this passage in galatians let's pray Heavenly father thank you again for the opportunity we have to gather together to look at your word uh, to fellowship online but most of all to Lord, lord to listen to you and what you want to say to us give us ears to hear and help us to understand this passage in a way that will impact our lives we ask and pray again in the name of jesus Amen. Tonight we're looking at uh, Galatians chapter 4. And really the beginning of chapter 4, The it begins at the end. Chapter 3 verse 23 flows straight into. The argument it has from 3.23 is uh, repeated in this paragraph. So we may, not sure, duck backwards and forwards a little bit. Before I do that, let me give you by way of background. <clears throat> there's some interesting cultural and historical things that Paul and the people he was writing to, the Galatians, and everybody in the first century world knew and experienced in their daily life, which was very different to our life. So some things we need to explain. Um, Before I share particularly some of those when it comes to adoption and how different that is to our understanding of the word and our practice, I wanted to talk to you about legalism, because that's what ultimately the Apostle Paul is combating, that he's Writing to a group of new believers in the Lord Jesus who have come under the influence of some other probably professing Christians, Jewish Christians, Jewish by background, now perhaps professing Christians, we don't have a lot of detail, but who are convinced that there are certain rules and regulations and rituals that as followers of Jesus we have to maintain they believed in Jesus, they simply added Jesus to their whole list of rules and regulations. They were basically saying to the Galatians, um, you're almost there, you've been born again, you've accepted Jesus, but what you need to do is add the law to that. And there are certain implications that came out of it for them. And the Galatians had uh, pretty much bought it. They were being greatly influenced by it, which is hence the tone of Galatians. Paul is absolutely gobsmacked, he's totally surprised by How could this be happening? In our world, we still have the influence of legalism. Legalism is something that gives the appearance of maturity as a Christian, when in reality, it's more like a second childhood in Christian experience. Um, I don't doubt that people who are legalistic are motivated by wanting to be better Christians, but their methods are wrong. Their understanding is certainly incorrect the Judaizers back in Galatians they were saying that the law obeying the law will make you a better Christian and our old sinful nature our old nature there's something in us that that appeals to which is why legalism is still quite popular even in the Christian Church it feeds our ego it focuses on the things that we have to do and then that gives us a sense of accomplishment and that, in turn, can feed our pride and, like I said, our ego. Legalistic Christianity is just another childish superstition. Many of us have had no people who still have superstitions. And there's a whole list of them. I just wrote down some. There's astrology, tea leaves, touch wood. People say that, I'm sure, now in jest, but there are some people who are quite serious about it. Uh, Throwing salt over the shoulder, Um, fear of black cats, broken mirrors, walking under a ladder, though that one may have some sort of rational base to it. The number four or 44, particularly for our Chinese brothers and sisters, the number 13 for us, rabbit's foot. When I used to play football, there were some in my team who were quite superstitious they, if they had a good game the week before, then they analyzed what they ate, what they did, the order in which they got dressed, the, and they tried to repeat that week after week after week. And some very world famous sports people even today have those same sort of superstitious habits. They somehow connect that because I did this in this order that led to that good result. If I continue to do that, that'll repeat that result. Even people as famous as David Beckham have their own superstitions. Christians do too. Christians, not necessarily superstitions, but they have rules and regulations which they have added to the gospel. And they think that by doing these things, they will be more pleasing to God, more acceptable to God. Um, and in the worst case scenario, they actually think it's adding to their salvation. For instance, you may have heard some of this. Um, That we need to wear a tie uh, if we're a man a male uh, coming to church we all need to wear our best clothes in coming to church we need to keep the sabbath Uh, christians don't go to the cinema they certainly don't go to hotels and pubs christians don't shop on sundays Uh, christians don't play games on sunday Um, i don't know anybody but i have read about there are even people who believe that If you write a letter on Sunday afternoon, you can't post it on Sunday. You have to wait till the next day to post it because of this understanding, this fear that if I do something on Sunday, it's causing somebody else to work on Sunday. And Sunday is the Lord's day and that's supposed to be our Sabbath. That's how they think. That's not correct thinking, but that's how they think. I even knew the deacon in a previous church where I was, who was quite adamant that it was wrong for Christians to shop on Sunday, that the supermarkets and everything should be closed on Sunday so that everybody had the opportunity to go to church. He would have no objections to ordering his Sunday papers to be delivered to him, but he would never go to the shops to buy them on one Sunday. Until one Sunday, after a few years of me being in that church, I went down to the supermarket, because I didn't have those limitations, I went down to the supermarket and guess who I saw? This guy, this deacon, who was supposedly homesick that weekend, but he was as red as a beetroot when he saw me because he'd been exposed. He was not only breaking his own conscience and breaking his own rule and standards, but he had been caught out. The attitude for some believers in Jesus is, if I do these things, or if I avoid doing those other things, then God will be pleased with me. <clears throat> in fact, that might even add to my salvation. Invariably, that leads to comparing yourself with others and elevating yourself, of course, because you're being good and they're not. It leads to criticising others. It can even lead to condemning others. Um, the reality is, in Christ, we've been set free from all of these rules and regulations. Um, I am certainly, I can. Choose to do those things or not do those things, that's fine. That's between me and God. And I can follow my conscience and do as I believe God wants me to do, but I can't impose those non-biblical standards or ideas upon others. Now, that's what's going on here in Galatians. That One group of professing believers are imposing standards, extra-biblical standards, if you like, upon other Christians. Let me give this illustration and then let's jump into the passage. What would you say to someone if you got on a plane and you um, boarded with them and sat across the aisle from them so you could see them quite clearly and as the plane is taxiing and then revving up to race down the the runway for takeoff, you look across and you see that person with their arms on the the chair just very quietly push themselves up just an inch or a couple of inches, four centimetres from their seat. If you said to them, what are you doing? And if they were to say to you, I'm helping the plane to lift by supporting my own weight, what would you think? Well, it's ludicrous, isn't it? It's, it's stupidity. It's faulty thinking. But that's exactly what legalistic Christians are doing. They're, by their own effort, trying to help Jesus save them. We can't help Jesus save us. We can't contribute in any way to that. He does it all for us. Like all illustrations, that they all have their limitations. Please don't take this illustration to think or apply that all we have to do to be saved is sit back and do nothing. I'm not using it for that purpose because that's also not true. We do have things that we are to do to cooperate with what Jesus has done for us and to work out in our life. Well, let's jump into this passage and see where Paul takes his argument for this first century group of Galatian Christians. Firstly, in verses 1 to 7, he's going to explain their adoption. And I'll need to talk about that because, as I said, it's quite different. Verses 8 to 11, he expresses his sadness at their regression. They're going back under under the law, under rules and regulations and these limitations. And he regrets and he's saddened by the fact that we used to be close. Now you seem to have abandoned me. You're going with them. And then thirdly, in verses 12 to 20, he appeals for their affection and for their restoration. Um, he warned them that these Judaizers are simply using you. Uh, they're not really in concerned for you. And I wish I could be there so that I could change my tone because I am very concerned for you. He even says at some point in this passage, verse 11, that I fear for you. I think. I may have wasted my efforts on you. It's been a waste of time. You haven't got it. You haven't understood the gospel. Well, this is his argument. The end of chapter 3, he says, In Christ and because of Christ, we belong to him. And because we belong to Jesus, we also belong to one another. We are part of the body of Christ. And as part of the body of Christ and in Christ, we are heirs. We Children of Abraham, we inherit all of God's promises to Abraham through Jesus. All of God's promises are yes in Him, in Jesus. We do that by being in Jesus, not by becoming a Jew. So, Paul argues if you're a Jew by cultural and um, parental background, then you need to be in Christ. When you believe, that's equivalent to you being adopted into his forever family. If you're not a Jew, you don't need to become a Jew. You simply need to be in Christ. And that's certainly what he's arguing in Galatians, as indeed the New Testament does. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. Paul has used this very illustration back in chapter 3 and verses 23 to 25. And he repeats it again here and focuses upon that aspect of being an heir. This is the cultural background, which is very different for us, so we need to take a few minutes simply to understand it. All cultures have some form of Um, aging process of acknowledging that a person is no longer a child or a youth that they are now an adult and a responsible member of society for the Jewish people it was the age of 12 they have their bar mitzvah and uh, on the next Sabbath after the 12th birthday then the child, the boy particularly, will declare his independence of his father and his commitment to the Lord and to the law and to be obedient to it in rome it was at the age of 14 and there was a public ceremony where actually the boy would take his toys and a girl would take her dolls and they would have this um, ceremony in which the the child was basically saying i'm putting aside childish things and i am now becoming an adult and the toga that the boys wore was then changed the apostle paul refers to that one corinthians 13 verse 11 when he's when I became a man, I put aside childish things. That's what he said. So in Rome, it was 14. In Greece, like us, it's 18. It used to be 21 for us, but now it's 18. At the age of 18, the Greek son, the Greek child, became what is called a cadet. And for the next two years, he was to serve the state or the clan. All of Greece was divided up into 10, 12 clans. And so whichever one he belonged to, he was to serve them and he was subject to their control and influence. But after two years, so at the age of 20, he became an independent and free citizen. The boy would have his long hair cut and that would be offered to the god Apollo. And everybody understood that that was the process, that that was their cultural recognition of transition from youth to adulthood, independence. That's what Paul is referring to here. What I'm saying to you, as long as an heir, a child, who is the rightful future heir of whatever the property or wealth was, if they're underage, if they have not yet reached this age of maturity, then in their culture, they were put under the influence of a very trusted slave called a guardian or a tutor or a supervisor, a pedagogue. And the pedagogue was this very trusted, servant um, who had very clear responsibilities to raise that child. They acted on behalf of the parents. um, And so the child was under the very strict discipline of the guardian. Uh, The guardian would tell the child, the son, when to wake up, what to wear, when to go to school, um, make sure when they came home that they studied, how they were to behave, would teach them how to obey, when they would go to bed. The child, even though he was the son of the father, the owner, even though he's the rightful heir, he had no permission to go anywhere without the companionship of the guardian, and he could do nothing without the permission of the guardian. And in fact, when the child went to school, the guardian would walk behind them, would often have a rod or a stick. If the child got off track or got distracted or slowed down, then often there would be a cane was used. There could be a whipping. And the guardian had that authority and control over the son over the rightful heir. They called him the young master. Master because one day we'd inherit everything, but young to keep him in his place. That it wasn't his yet. He was not mature enough to be able to receive it. And this, of course, is not a permanent arrangement. When the child came of age, then the time set by the father, then the relationship changed. There was Often a very close relationship had developed over those years. They were still friendly, still cared for each other. There's no authority and there's no control anymore. The child is now an adult. They're now a rightful heir, the owner. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, that's how God used the law. The law was like a guardian, which was to guide you and direct you and control you to present you to Christ. And in Christ... When you come to believe in him, that's your coming of age ceremony. You are no longer a slave, you are now a son. And not just a son, as he will go on to say. Verse 3, he says, So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery, and he uses this very difficult word under the elemental spiritual forces of the world pages and articles written on this it has the possibility of three or four different meanings the easiest to probably get our heads around is simply to say it's like um, the basic principles that govern our lives some commentators want to put it in a religious sense some people want to put it in some other spiritual sense some people just want to put it in normal ordinary life it's like the the elements, the basics of education, the ABCs, the learning the alphabet. The word literally means to put in a row or to rank in order. And this, the Apostle Paul is saying, so when we were underage, before we came to faith in Jesus, we were in slavery under the the ABCs of the law. If we wanted to know God's will, then we discovered it through reading his word, the Old Testament. But now, verse four, But when the set time had fully come, the time for us to come of age, our freedom, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, for what purpose? To redeem those under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sonship. In Paul's culture, this made easy sense. For us, it's a bit of a wrestle, and we need to work at it a little bit. Notice what Paul says in verse 4. When the time had fully come, the time set by the Father, uh, that Jesus came into our world, and by his life, his death, and his resurrection, he came to redeem us and to adopt us, verse 4 and 5. The time had fully come, both in history and in providence. There was a common Greek language because of Alexander the Great. Everybody spoke a common language, Greek, and then with a Roman influence, Latin. Um, because of the Roman Empire, there was peace everywhere because of their military dominance. But they are also masters at constructing roads in order for their military to move very quickly. Uh, But that led to peace and a means of easy transportation. You could go anywhere in the ancient world and you could communicate with anybody because of the Greek and the Roman laws and roads. God had prepared all of this. When the time had fully come, when the time was just right, And also religiously, the Gentiles were tired of their old pagan gods and how ineffective it all was. And the Jews had grown quite weary, being bound to the law and failing at keeping it for about 1500 years. At that time, at just the right time, God sent his son. And if you note the passage, verse four says, um, God sent his son born of a woman. It gives us an indication, an insight into the true identity of who Jesus is. Jesus is God's son. He's divine. And he was sent before he was born. He existed before he was born. He's eternal. Um, The son of God is God the son. Fully equal to the father and to the spirit. And then Paul says, God sent his son born of a woman. Fully human. Whether it's an allusion to the virgin birth or not, I think is a secondary point. The main point is to say that Jesus was sent and he became fully human, he became man, he became one with us in order that he could redeem us. He was born under the law in order that he, and so, ouch, so he was bound to obey the law and he did so perfectly, he did it all, never broke one. Including even what the law says about becoming a curse taking the death penalty, if you committed sin. And he took our sin upon us, so therefore he wore our death penalty. Verse 5, why did he come? He came to redeem us, to pay the price. If Jesus wasn't a man, then he couldn't redeem humankind. If he hadn't been righteous without sin, then he couldn't redeem the unrighteous. And if he hadn't have been God the Son, then he couldn't have been... He wouldn't have been able to make us sons of God, sons and daughters of God. So he came to redeem, to pay the price in order that we could be set free. But not just that, Paul goes on to say, and so that we might receive the adoption as sons. He came to atone and to adopt. We have been released from sin, rescued, saved, redeemed, and adopted. There's a hint of this, even at the resurrection. In Matthew 28 and verse 10, the Lord Jesus says to the women, go and tell my brothers that I'll meet them in Galilee. My brothers, they're part of the family. He even alludes to this in John 20 when he's talking to Mary Magdalene. I have not yet ascended to my father and your father, that we have the same father. We are in the family. Jesus anticipated this in The Lord's Prayer, when the disciples said, teach us, Lord, how to pray. And he said, pray like this, our Father. Jesus came to redeem us and to adopt us, to be part of his and the Father's family. And God not only wants us to know that we are loved and accepted in his family, um, he sent his Spirit in order that we might be fully aware of that and assured of it the Holy Spirit comes, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and verse 6 tells us, and he whispers in us, in our hearts, Abba, Father. And you've heard on numerous occasions that Abba is a very intimate, very close word for a child father relationship. And it's Aramaic and that's exactly what it is. But there's also a note of respect as well as affection endearment. Um, it's dear father dear dad dearest father there's a closeness and an intimacy and god wants us to have a relationship with him just like that before i move on let me also point out the divine uh, the trinity working together father son and spirit and we get caught up in that we're included in it the father the son and the spirit at work in us It's the spirit in us, his voice on our lips that says, Abba Father, God in us working and um, strengthening this relationship. The Apostle Paul will go on to say in Galatians, So therefore we are to live by the spirit, not by the rules and regulations, not legalistically, but by the freedom and direction of God's spirit as he reveals his truth through his inspired word. The Old Testament law can be divided into three parts. There is the civil law, which is for the nation of Israel. It instructed them how they should live as a nation. There is a ceremonial law, which is their religious instruction, how they should worship their sacrifices in the temple and the priesthood, etc. But then there is also another component to the law, which is the moral law, which is how they should live and how they should behave in Jesus, the ceremonial law has been, it was a picture of him, and all of those pictures now are not necessary because the actual person has come. We don't need the pictures. The national law applied to Israel when they're a nation doesn't apply to us, but the moral law is universal, and you'll find that is repeated in the New Testament. Well, my time is going, so let me hasten to a conclusion. Let me say firstly, the Apostle Paul is saying in this passage uh, that we are far more than the product of our parents. Our parents give us our genes, but God gives us grace. We get our looks from our mum and dad, but we get eternal life from our Heavenly Father and our character is to develop to become more like the Lord Jesus. We're part of God's family. And God gives us what our family couldn't or didn't. Um, He doesn't leave us to adrift on the sea of our own abilities and hereditary. Um, the past is in other words, is not our prison. We have a choice to make. Um, we can change paths, we can choose well, and to do so we need to choose God, to choose knowing him through the person of Jesus. And he sets us free from all of these other rules and regulations in religion. Let me ask you three things. Number one, how's your relationship with God? Do you see God as the boss, the master, the Lord? Are you frightened of him? Or do you see God as he wants to be seen, which is a loving heavenly father, as Abba, father? God wants you to be and to act as his child. Now, there is a sense in which he is master and he is Lord, of course. But God wants us to not be in fear of him in that sense, but to know him and love him as our Father. And our Father is our Lord. Number two, are you saved by Christ? Or are you saved by Christ in your efforts? Needs thinking about. There are three options. Only one of them is right. Some people say we are saved by Christ alone. And they mean, and we don't have to do anything. We don't have to serve we don't have to obey we don't have to change well they're wrong that's not true some people say secondly that we are saved by Christ and my efforts that Jesus gets me so far but I have to do certain things I have to obey I have to be religious I have to attend church I have to do these things in order to be saved they're wrong the truth is that I am saved by Jesus And because he saves me, that will show in my life. There will be works and actions and change which will flow out of it. I am saved by Christ alone. But if I am saved, then there will be a transformation and a change. We have his spirit in us and he will be changing us. Thirdly, finally, what truth will you take from this passage into this week that you can think about and implement in your own life? Is it a verse Is it a concept, a word that I've spoken about maybe out of this passage? There's a lot more in it. And what application will you make into your own life? God wants us to take his word and the truths of it and to apply it to our life. So let me encourage you to think about it and not simply finish and move on, but pause, take some time and consider. What is there in this passage that I need to think about more so that I can become pleasing to my heavenly father we are no longer slaves we are heirs children of our heavenly father let me pray heavenly father thank you for pouring your love into our hearts and lives by your spirit help us to love others as you do and to care deeply for them so that jesus can be formed in them and indeed formed in us help us to cooperate with what you do in each of our lives thank you lord for the holy spirit within us who whispers to us, who assures us that we are your sons and daughters because of Jesus. We bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.